when you arrive at basic training, you, you start memorizing a lot of different military facts. One of the first military facts that you're supposed to memorize as a prospective infantry soldier are the maximum effective ranges of the various weapons that infantrymen use. Right? So, Roger, got a question. What is the maximum effective range of an M16? You remember? I didn't remember it either. I had to Google it. It's 800 meters. Um, and so you remember all that, M16, for all of your weapons. Uh, in fact, I have actually forgotten all of the maximum effective range I had to memorize except one. There was one that they drilled in our heads on day one that I have remembered into this day. And that is the maximum effective range, the maximum effective range of an excuse. The maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. And that was easy to memorize, but it was a hard lesson to learn because I could always have reasons why it wasn't my fault, why it couldn't have been helped, why I should not be held accountable. I always had excuses. But what my drill sergeants and later my squad leaders taught me was that none of my excuses excused anything. I was an infantry soldier. And so I was expected to be able to do everything that an infantry soldier was expected to do and that I was told to do. In some ways, I feel that there needs to be an awakening in those who profess faith in Jesus to understand that the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. For truly, when it comes to faithfully serving Jesus, there is a seemingly endless Supply of excuses that people give to justify their lack of service to Jesus. But excuses aren't anything new. Our generation did not come up with them. People have always made excuses to justify not serving Jesus. And what may be surprising for us to know is that Jesus' view of excuses is not that different from the army's view of the maximum effective range. Of excuses. So look at this. Open your Bible to Luke 14. Starting in verse 15. That's page 797 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 14 and 15. It says, now when one of those who sat at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him. Well, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, 
Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring them here. The poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The title of the message this morning is No Excuses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We bow and surrender our lives to you in this time. We need you, God, to take what we're going to look at today and make it real in our lives. Father, we live in a in a generation where excuses are accepted for everything. We live in a generation where nothing is ever our fault and everyone is just expected to accept our excuses no matter what they are or how they are. And yet as we look at what Jesus said, He doesn't. Those things are not okay to Him. And that's a hard saying. That is difficult for us to accept. So this morning, send your Holy Spirit to come. And let Him give us ears to hear and hearts tender to receive the words of Christ. Let your Holy Spirit Fight against our flesh that would want to stop up our ears and cause us to reject what Jesus says out of hand without even considering what it means for us. Send your Holy Spirit to take this word and make it living and active. So that if we are living lives of making excuses as to why we are not faithful in our service to Jesus, that we would be bothered by that. Convict us where we need convicting. Challenge us where we need challenging. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me not be a hindrance anyway to what you once said. Have your way in my life. Have your way in all of our lives. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Luke 14 opens with Jesus being invited to the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Now, this wasn't an example of hospitality, but an opportunity for accusation. They gathered on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisee invited Jesus, and he invited a man that had dropsy to come and eat with them to see what Jesus would do. The Pharisees' hope was to catch Jesus in a trap. If Jesus healed the man, they could say he ignored the Sabbath and they could accuse him of being a lawbreaker. If Jesus didn't heal the man, they could accuse him of not caring about the needs of others and say he was hard-hearted and really not much different than them. They thought they had Jesus in a no-win situation. But Jesus being Jesus, knowing their hearts, he turned the tables on them. He asked them if it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath or was it lawful to to do nothing. They didn't like his answer or what he said and so they ignored him. 
He didn't answer at all. Now Jesus wasn't willing to let this go. They thought they had him. They thought they had tricked him into breaking the law and they would have a reason to accuse him. But Jesus made a statement and he said, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? And what he was showing them was there were occasions in which they would work on the Sabbath. They would make excuses. They would find justifications for them doing the things that they thought needed to be done. And yet they were trying to condemn Jesus for the very same thing. So they were silent some more. But Jesus wasn't willing to let them off the hook in this teachable moment. He took them to task over their, their pride and their constant self-promotion using two parables. And they were designed to teach these hard-hearted men the value of true humility. Instead of trying to promote themselves by seeking the seats of honor at a feast, what they were to do was to take a, a seat of low esteem and wait until they were moved up. Right? They were also to reach out to people who could not repay them. Right? When they invited people to their feast, they weren't to invite the high class people that could invite them and give them a rub of, of importance. Instead, they were to invite the poor, the lame, and the beggars. And that brings us to our text. They don't like this. And so what they do is one guy responds in trying to sound super spiritual. He says in verse 15, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now the Jews believed that the kingdom of God was going to be like a great big feast. They believed they would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they would break bread. Now this fella expected to be there. In fact, most Jews expected to be there. They felt they would be there just by virtue of being a Jew. Now, the religious leaders especially expected to be there because of their commitment to following God's law. Jesus' story and the point that he's making in the story to come, it would have come as quite a shock to them. And it could come as a surprise to us as well. Jesus says that a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now, the host in this situation represents God. That he has invited people to take part in his banquet. In Revelation, we see a description of something that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what the Old Testament Jews thought of as eating bread in the kingdom of God, the New Testament calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. So God is the host and he is inviting people to take part in it. Now, to understand the parable, we have to understand how banquets and feasts like this were done. The guy didn't just cook a bunch of food and then call around and say, hey, I've cooked a bunch of food. Would you like to come over? Rather, what he would do is he would say, I'm going to have a feast. Would you like to come? And the people would RSVP. Yes, I'll be there. Yes, I'm going to come. And then they were supposed to kind of get ready and wait because it took a while to prepare the feast. And when the things were ready, he would send out a runner saying everything's ready. Come and eat. And they were then to drop what they were doing because they had RSVP'd and they were to come to the feast. So the guy has a great supper and he invites many. In verse 17, he sends his servant saying to those who were invited and, keep in mind, had said they would come. Come, for all things are now ready. So these people have already accepted the invitation. 
And they've said they would come. And here's how it applies to the religious leaders. The religious leaders were the folks in this story. They had already accepted an invitation from God. As good Jewish people, they saw themselves as being in a covenant relationship with God. Part of being in this covenant was accepting God's invitation. Yes, I'll be there. Now here's how it applies to us. If we profess faith in Jesus Christ, then we too have accepted that invitation. For God has called us. God called us through the Holy Spirit to salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. By repenting of our sins and calling on Jesus to save us, we accepted that invitation. And a part of accepting the invitation is coming when the Master calls. The people of the story accepted the invitation, and so they were actually supposed to come when the host called. The Pharisees had accepted the invitation, and so they were to live according to God's law. They were to do the things the law said they were supposed to do. We have accepted the invitation, and so we're supposed to do what Jesus wants us to do. Obedience to Jesus is a part of Of accepting the invitation. Now when the man goes out and begins to tell them it's time. They all begin to make excuses. As to why they couldn't come. And we'll look at the excuses individually in a minute. But for now just know they made excuses. And they said they were all too busy. To do what they had said they would do. Now look at the first of verse 21. To see how the master felt about this. So the servant came and reported these things to the master that all had made excuses, said they couldn't come. Then the master of the house being angry. That's huge, right? He's angry. He doesn't hear their excuses and say, oh, I get it. Yeah, uh, that's right. Rather, he is angry at their excuses. He finds their excuses to be lame, inadequate and downright insulting. And the reality is, all of our excuses are lame. They're inadequate and they're insulting to the Lord we profess to follow. If we are genuinely disciples of Jesus Christ, this will be shown by service that's made of actions and not excuses. But the, ser- the master doesn't stop by just being angry. He says, quickly go out to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring here the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you have commanded. And still there's room. Go out to the highways and hedges. Compel them to come that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who were invited shall taste my supper. He was still going to have a feast. But now he was inviting different people. And those who had accepted the invitation, but then made excuses as to why they couldn't come, they would not get to be a part of it. They would not so much as get to taste anything that the man had prepared for them. Jesus' point for the religious leaders that despite saying they accepted God's invitation, they were not a part of the kingdom of God. Because their initial acceptance... It was really kind of words and not actions. It didn't lead to any sort of continual obedience. Like the people in the story, they all had good excuses. 
as to why they couldn't do what God wanted them to do, but their excuses didn't make their disobedience okay. They still had no part in the kingdom of God because their initial acceptance did not lead to continual obedience. The lesson, the truth from, uh, for us is that genuine disciples of Jesus have actions of devotion, not excuses for an action. Genuine disciples of Jesus have actions of devotion, not excuses for an action. Our excuses don't make our inaction acceptable. Those who know Jesus serve Jesus. That's clear throughout the New Testament. Those who are part of the kingdom of God serve the king of the kingdom. Also clear throughout scripture. And what that means is that those who make excuses are actually outside the kingdom. The lesson for us is that our initial acceptance of Jesus is validated. It's proven to be true. Not through our words but through our continual obedience to Jesus. There is no legitimate excuse that a disciple of Jesus can give to justify not serving Jesus. If we claim Jesus as Lord, we must live for Him. If we claim Jesus as Savior, we must live for Him as Lord. Genuine disciples of Jesus have actions of devotion, not excuses for an action. Now, the excuses that they give are all too familiar, as you'll see. There are real issues that we deal with, real reasons, real excuses that people in our day give. And as we look at this, I want to point out, as I do sometimes, everything we're going to look at today is Jesus, right? We're looking at the words of Christ. We're not going to look at Paul in this time. We're not going to look at the Old Testament. Just Jesus. Now this matters because in our day we're told Jesus had really low expectations for people. That Jesus just loves us as we are. And He doesn't expect us to do anything. If we love other people and we say we love Him, golly, we're good. And yet... When we look at what Jesus actually said, it is a far cry from the hippie, do-gooder Jesus that our current culture tells us is the Jesus of the Bible. So how do we handle our excuses? What does the Bible teach? What does Jesus teach? Well, possessions, first, are not an excuse for an action. Possessions are not an excuse for an action. Verse 18, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land and must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. He had recently bought a piece of land and he needed to check it out rather than coming to the party. His heart was so set upon the purchase he had made that he couldn't answer the call to the feast until he had seen it. His desire to enjoy his possessions kept him. From being able to come to the feast. Think how familiar that sounds in our day. There are all kinds of new possessions that come into our lives. House, land, car, bike, records, books, radios, televisions, 
a host of other material things. And what often happens if we're not careful is that we get so busy with our earthly possessions that we have no time to be faithful in our service to Jesus. We've accepted his invitation. We've said we would come. And then when he calls, we begin to make an excuse. Well, I've got this new car. I beg you, have me excused. I've got this new boat. I've got this new thing. I beg you, have me excused. Jesus' point is our possessions should not keep us from being faithful in our service to Him. Let me show you this more. Turn back a few pages to Luke 9, verse 23. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. There's following Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, follow him. It's what's required of someone who answers the call, who accepts the invitation. But we have a choice to make. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now to... To save our lives is to not be faithful in our service and our devotion to Jesus. It's to say, no thanks. Please have me excused. We can choose to save our lives by not answering the call. By not being faithful in our service and our devotion to Jesus. Or we can choose to lose our lives... By being faithful in our service and devotion to Jesus. And so actually save them. Now what Jesus says in verse 25. I think is. Or verse 24. Verse 24. We see that each choice has a unique consequence. Whoever desires to save his life. Will lose it. But those who are willing to lose their life for his sake. We'll save it. It's a play on words. Uh, and he's showing that it, it, while it looks contradictory, that life in the kingdom isn't like life on earth. I mean, it's not the natural way that you would think. He's talking about eternal things. But if I choose to save my life for physical things, I don't answer the call. No, I beg you, have me excused so that I can take part in my physical things then eternally, spiritually, I lose out. But if I, if I lose the physical life and I give myself to Jesus and take up my cross and follow Him, then I, I save my life for eternity. Some will say, oh, come on. It can't be. Surely you're not saying that eternity is at stake. Well, look at verse 25. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is lost or destroyed. Our, our soul is what's at stake in our decision about answering the call, about serving Jesus. And out of everything that we possess, our soul alone 
is eternal. So Jesus' point is that yes, you can save your life right now. And you can have everything that this world offers. You can have everything that you see and want, you can grab it. Anything your heart desires, you can attain it. Anything you want to do, you can do it. But that is a poor trade. To gain everything this world offers and to in the end be destroyed or lost. How sad. How sad to gain all the possessions offered in our world and yet lose our souls in the process. What a tragic waste of life. But disciples of Jesus, they don't waste their lives because their lives are filled with actions of devotion and not excuses for inaction. Turn back to Luke 14. So possessions are not an excuse for inaction. Work is not an excuse for inaction. Another said in verse 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask, have me excused. The second guy had bought these five yoke of oxen and needed to test them out. Now these were plowing animals and given the agrarian nature of society, it's likely this was a business investment. Being diligent in business or on the job is commendable and something Scripture actually teaches us to be. The problem that Jesus is describing isn't a growing business. It's not that he needs five yoke of oxen. The problem is his business keeping him from being able to come to the feast. He's, he said he would come. But now he's not. Because he's choosing his work. He's choosing prosperity, physical prosperity. Over answering the call of his Lord. And again, lots of folks are like this in our day. They're too busy with their work to be faithful in their service and devotion to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with working hard or making money or having possessions until those things begin to take priority over our service and our devotion to Jesus. At that point, they become a problem. And what a lot of people kind of feel is that they'll be faithful in their service to Jesus when they they don't have anything else to do. The reality is there's always something else to do. Our faithfulness and our service and our devotion to Jesus, it's meant to be a priority. Not a, I have time left over so I'll give that to Jesus. But Jesus is the priority, the center of my life that everything else revolves around Him. I mean, what if I were to say that Jesus doesn't bless us with jobs that take us away from Him? Why would Jesus give us a job That made us need Him less or want Him less. The reality is He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Let me show you from Scripture. Turn to Luke 12. Look at verse 13. A man from the crowd hollered out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. With me. Now it was a common practice in this day to get a respected religious teacher to act as an arbitrator for a will. And that's kind of the picture here. 
Their father had died, the inheritance had fallen, and the brother, probably the older brother, was keeping it all for himself, which was not allowed. Uh, the law kind of laid out in a pretty well fixed out way how much a person inherited. They inherited based upon their birth order, not upon... I mean, the, the dads were basically told, just because you like this son better, you can't leave all your stuff to him. I mean, it goes to the, the older son, inherited a double portion, the next guy inherited some, and then it went on down to there was nothing left. So, this guy has a legitimate complaint. He, it, it is right for him to say, I deserve my inheritance. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 14, Man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you, take heed... And beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Now again, the son had every right to expect he would receive his portion of the inheritance. Jesus' point in verse 15 isn't that it's wrong to pursue that. His point is that there's more to life than stuff. <clears throat> and what Jesus says in verse 15 is a setup for a story. It says, then... He spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now again, let's not misunderstand the point. The point isn't it's wrong to build bigger barns. The point isn't it's wrong to have a successful business. Jesus does not condemn him for that. The point, I think, is twofold. First, notice his self-focus. How many times does he talk about my or I? Right? He is all focused on himself. God has given him this tremendous crop, this great increase. And in the midst of all that God has given him, his only thought, what can I do with my stuff for myself? How can I make my life easier? How can I enlarge my barn so that I look better? How can I do my for me? And he was so focused on himself that he completely neglected his relationship with God. And look at what Jesus says about him in verse 20. And God said to him, fool. I mean, who knows? How many of you know that when God starts a sentence by calling you a fool, nothing that follows is good. Fool. This night, <clears throat> your soul will be required of you. Then, whose will those things be which you have provided? He's laid up all of this for himself, and God says, you're a fool. Because your life is in my hands and right now I'm calling you into account. Then what happens to everything you've laid up for yourself in your easy peasy future? But that's not the point. Look at the point of verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus, not me, Jesus says... That anyone who focuses on success and neglects their relationship with God is just as big of a fool as the guy in this story. 
Again, it would go back to what he said in Luke 9. What a waste to gain the whole world and lose your soul in the process. To live a life focused on success and wealth is the life of a fool, according to Jesus. But disciples, they're not fools because their lives are marked by actions of devotion and not excuses for inaction. So possessions are not an excuse for inaction. Work is not an excuse for inaction. Go ahead and turn back to Luke 14. And finally, family is not an excuse for inaction. This is where it gets hard. The last in verse 20 says, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Of all the excuses, this one seems the most reasonable. I mean, on the surface, right? Because nobody just buys a land one day. I mean, well, I guess somebody does, but probably very few people buy a significant plot of land without having first seen it. Evelyn, do a lot of people just come in and say, I want to buy a house, and you, you show them a picture and tell them about it, and they plop down all the money right then? Seems unlikely then. Same way, very few people would have bought five yoke of oxen without going to test them. Rich, when you go buy a tractor for the farm, you just like plop down the money and then hope the one that comes in is like the one that they, they promised? No. Now, so it seems unlikely. But a wife, I mean, come on. Right? I mean, you, you've got, you just married your wife now. Surely that's a, a valid excuse. But, here's the deal. Weddings in Mideast culture were a big, big thing. Planned months in advance. But he hadn't just ran off to Vegas and gotten married and was now coming back and getting ready to leave for his honeymoon. He knew about the wedding when he had accepted the invitation to the feast. And he either never intended to go, going to use this as an excuse, or he thought he would go if it could fit within his family plans. Both of those were a grievous insult to the man who hosted the banquet that he had promised to attend. And what he had done was place his personal relationships ahead of everything else in his life. And again, this is common in our day. How many believers say they can't be active and faithful in their service and devotion to Jesus because they're too busy with, with their activities? their hobbies, or they're too busy with their kids' activities and their kids' hobbies. Kids are involved in 43 extracurricular activities, and so something has to give. So what is it on a typical family? What gives? One of the 43 extracurricular activities or faithfulness and service and devotion to Jesus? Sadly, very sadly, most often, it is faithfulness and service and devotion to Jesus. And the point that Jesus is making is that nothing, not family, not friends, not important social functions, should be put ahead of our faithfulness and our service and our devotion to Him. Look down at verse 26 of Luke 14. If anyone does not come to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his 
Father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also. He, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now just look at verse 33. <clears throat> so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now the idea that Jesus is calling for here, being more devoted to him than to family. It sounds really odd in our day. And it sounded really odd in their day. And yet, that is what Jesus demands. This is what Jesus accepts. In fact, He says He will not accept anything else. Right? That if we are not willing to be more devoted to Him than to family and to our life and to anything, we, we cannot be His disciple. Not that it will be difficult, but we cannot. Be His disciple. And that's hard. Because I'll be honest, I I love my family. I love my wife and my daughters. There is very little in life I would rather do than spend time with my family. But as wonderful as they are, they aren't Jesus. Kelly did not die on the cross for my sins and rise again for my salvation. My daughters... Do not make it possible for me to have eternal life. Only Jesus did those things. Therefore, Jesus is worthy of full and complete devotion to Him. And nothing or no one even comes close to being as worthy of our devotion as Jesus does. But at the same time, let me affirm, as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife, the best thing you can do for your family is be fully devoted to Jesus. The fear that we have is that if we are fully devoted to Jesus, we will neglect our family. That's not even remotely the case. If I am fully devoted to Jesus, I will love my wife like Jesus loves the church. And I will not love her in that way unless... I am fully devoted to Jesus. If I am fully devoted to Jesus, I will love my kids in the way that Jesus has loved me. But I will not love my kids like Jesus has loved me if I am fully devoted to anything else, even them. Jesus must be the object of my affection and my devotion. And here's why. When we seek our family, we seek to make our family, our husband, our wife, our kids, the primary object of our devotion. We want things from them. Because the thing that we are devoted to, we expect that it will provide something for us. And when I make Kelly the supreme object of my devotion in my life, what I expect is that she can provide me with love. She can provide me with joy. She can provide me with peace. And she can provide me with redemption. When I make my girls the supreme object of my devotion, I expect that they will provide me with love, with joy, with peace, with purpose, and even redemption. You say, oh, I won't expect them to save me, but we do. We look at at our lives and we all can look back and say, I've wasted time. There's things I hadn't done. There's things I did wrong. My kids will make up for that. My kids and, and what they grow into, that will atone for my mistakes. What we're saying is they will redeem me. And they cannot do that. They cannot make up for our mistakes. 
They cannot redeem our past. They cannot atone for our sins. They cannot give us unconditional love. They cannot give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. They cannot give us a peace that passes all understanding. They cannot give us a purpose for our lives. It's when we see them as that and they don't fulfill it, guess what happens? We become critical of them. We begin to resent them. I expect that you will do this because I need that from you and you're not. You're failing me. And we will resent them in our lives. And rather than enjoying them, we will work to fix them and likely destroy our relationship with them. The reality is we cannot fix them. Only Jesus can fix whatever's wrong. But when Jesus is the primary object of our devotion, we are finding our love, our joy, our peace, our purpose and our redemption in Him. We are free to love our family, to love our wife, to love our husbands, to love our children. Not for what we expect them to provide for us, which they cannot provide, but because they are a tangible expression of God's favor and blessing. In our lives. As long as we are expecting them to fulfill that need that only Jesus can fulfill. We will not enjoy them. But when we seek Jesus for these things. We see them in all of their flaws and all of their mistakes. And all of the things that they do that irritate us. Maybe embarrass us. It's tangible expressions. of God's favor and His blessing. On our lives. We don't have time to get into it today. But if you really want to do a study. That's really interesting. Read the life of King Ahab. From 1 Kings 16 through 22. And notice what happens. When a person of God. Puts his wife. On the pedestal that God belongs. She becomes a monster. He becomes a monster. Read 1 Samuel verses chapters 2 through 4 about what happens when Eli puts his son in the place where his sons in the place where only God belongs. The Bible says they become sons of Belial, which is essentially children of the devil. Do you want to make your children horrible people? Do you want to make them children of, of hell? Not just horrible people that are hard to get along with. Do you want to make them unsaved rebels against God? You make them God in your life. It will destroy them because they cannot bear the weight of that level of devotion. They cannot be for you what only Jesus can be. When we put someone... In that place of primary devotion in our lives. It always has horribly detrimental effects on us and on them. But disciples of Christ don't do this. Because they have lives that are marked by actions of devotion. And not excuses for inaction. So as we come to the end. And you look at your life. Do you see actions of devotion 
Or do you see excuses for inaction? I mean, just think about over your life. Think about actions of devotion. I'm not going to try to give you a list of actions of devotion, but just some. Prayer. Do you see prayer as a a regular thing in your life? Or are there excuses for why you don't pray? Do you regularly read your Bible? Or or is your life filled with excuses about why you can't? Do you regularly come to, to church? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? Do you talk about Jesus to others? I'm not even talking about just evangelism necessarily. I'm just saying, talk to other people about how good Jesus has been. Or is your life filled with excuses as to why you can't? Are you generous with the stuff that God has given you? Or is your life filled with excuses as to why you can't? Do you love your neighbor and help them in their time of need? Or or is your life filled with excuses as to why you can't? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you using it to build the kingdom in Gaiman? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? Do you turn the other cheek? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? Do you do all things without griping and complaining? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? Do you guard your mouth so that no corrupt communication comes out of it? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? Do you live a holy life? Or do you have excuses as to why you can't? If you look at your life and you see excuses of inaction, why? Why are they there? Because what we see in Scripture, not not my words, what Jesus said, excuses of inaction are deeply problematic. And they demonstrate one of two problems in our spiritual life. Either we have not been born again, or we have become prodigals in our lives. We have drifted and become prodigals. So if our life is marked by excuses of inaction, why? Why are those excuses there? Why is that inaction there? Have you ever seen genuine evidence of being born again? Has your heart and your desires ever legitimately changed in your life? If not, perhaps that's where you need to start. Genuinely come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Believe upon Him. Call upon Him to save you. And not just check a box, but but make you have a rebirth where you'll be made new. And if there has, but you've drifted, take that drift seriously. Don't drift to damnation. Turn now and repent. If there's excuses and inaction, we have to deal with it. Because the conclusion of this story is those who were invited and made excuses were not a part of the supper. They missed everything the banquet post planned for them. If you live a life filled with excuses of inaction, you will miss everything God has planned for you. Let's bow our heads.
have a time to think through and pray with God in this time.